Are we rolling, Mark? Okay. Tonight's Psalms, Psalm 42 through 49, are evidence of God's amazing grace. Notice they're labeled a contemplation of the sons of Korah. You remember back in Numbers chapter 16? Korah was the man who led a revolt in the wilderness against Moses and Aaron. Remember, Korah was a Levite. He was a member of the tribe that God had raised up to help in the tabernacle worship. The problem, though, is that Korah had taken too much upon himself. He began to question Moses' authority and Moses' leadership. And in Numbers 16, verse 32, we're told of God's judgment. The ground split apart under them, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the men with Korah. And who the ground didn't get, verse 35 tells us, a fire came out from the Lord and consumed them. Wow. God put down a rebellion in the camp with a mudslide and a lightning strike. Korah, his sidekicks, and their families all died in God's judgment that day with one exception, the sons of Korah. For when we get over in Numbers, in chapter 26, verse 11, we're told, Nevertheless, the children of Korah did not die. Now, why were Korah's sons exempt and preserved? We're not told. But we do know their response to this mercy and grace. They were appreciative. As a matter of fact, they were determined to never again allow rebellion to spoil their worship. They were faithful to God and they became key players in Israel's spiritual life. They're the ones responsible for Psalm 42 through 49. Notice too, these psalms are called mesquils or contemplations. How ironic that some of the Bible's most insightful psalms were written by the descendants of one of the Bible's most blatant blasphemers. How ironic. Psalm 42 through 49, along with four other psalms, 84 and 85 and 87 and 88, were written either by or to the sons of Korah. To me, this is proof that no one is a slave to a sinful heritage. Just because your father was a sinner doesn't mean you have to follow in his footsteps. In Christ Jesus, we can all change our destiny. Case in point, the sons of Korah. Well, the preface to Psalm 42 reads, To the chief musician, a contemplation of the sons of Korah. Now, we've narrowed it down to a family, but what were the circumstances of the individual who actually penned this psalm? Apparently, the author of this psalm was a Levite who was far from home, and he was away from the temple. There are clues in the psalm that tell us that he was in the Golan Heights. He was in the remote, mountainous region up in northern Israel, up near the headwaters of the Jordan. There he desperately missed the temple worship. Oh, how he longed for the presence of God. He discovered that nothing satisfied him apart from God's presence. That's where we begin in verse 1. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God. For the living God. On occasion, our kids would forget to feed the dog. And the poor pooch would go all day without any water to drink. 
And at night when we finally got home and discovered our mistake, we'd bring her out a bowl of water. Let me tell you, that parched pooch wouldn't just take a sip or two. Oh, my. She'd gulp and lap. She'd lap and she'd gulp. And this is how the psalmist longs for God. As a deer pines for the brook, as a thirsty dog craves water, the psalmist thirsts for God. You know, actually, every human heart thirsts for God. The problem is some people, they they don't realize what they thirsted for until they find Him. They don't realize what it was they hungered for. You know, every man is born with this hunger. You know, like infants. You know how a little baby's born with a rooting reflex? You know, your little baby gets hungry and their little mouth starts to root. They just start looking, start trying to suck for the nipple. You know, they're trying to find it somewhere. That's that rooting reflex. Did you know we all have that reflex? It's in our hearts. Spiritually speaking, we're all hungry. We're all rooting. And it's so funny. You see people just like little babies, you know, put something in, in front of them. It doesn't matter what it is, a set of keys or a little ball or some sponge. They'll just grab it and they'll stick it in their mouth and they'll start sucking on it. This is the problem with a lot of adults. They're hungry for something. They don't know what. And so whatever comes down the pike, sex or drugs or alcohol or fame or success, whatever it is that comes down the pike, they just want to take it and they just want to stick it in their mouth and start sucking on it, hoping it will satisfy them. When will we learn that only God satisfies a human heart? St. Augustine sums it up in his prayer. You have formed us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Another quote explains our hunger. The soul of man is made with sweet tastes, and only God himself is rich enough to delight it. You remember what Jesus told the Samaritan woman at the well? Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst again. Jesus is our thirst quencher. He just waits to be wanted. Do you want him? Does your soul hunger and thirst for God? You know, in Old Testament times, God's presence was revealed in the temple. The psalmist, though, is on the road. He's away from the sanctuary. And so he asks in verse 2, When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they continually say to me, Where is your God? You know, once the pastor had met with a committee of some stubborn church members. I know we don't have any stubborn church members around here, but they do exist in other churches. But the pastor had met with some stubborn church members to discuss some changes that he wanted to make in the church. Of course, they shot down all of his ideas. But the pastor was determined to get the last laugh. In the minutes of the meeting, he listed the members present, and then he listed the one member who was absent, God. (laughs) Have you ever felt that God was absent from your life, absent from what you're doing? You no longer sense His presence. You no longer feel His power. You seem distant from God. This is how the psalmist felt. He says in verse 4, When I remember these things, I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go with the multitude. I went with them to the house of God with the voice of joy and praise, with a multitude that kept a pilgrim feast. You Remember, Old Testament worship was accentuated by the sights of the temple, the aroma of the sacrifices, the excitement of the feasts. 
You know, worship in the Old Testament was a multi-sensory experience. You could see and smell and literally stroke the glory of God. But ultimately, Old Testament worship was limited by the temple. For worship was chained to a time and to a place. You had to be at the temple to get this sensory you know, kind of experience. Like a hot air balloon setting sail, Jesus cut worship's ties from the temple. Jesus said that true worshipers will now worship Him, not on this mountain or on that mountain, but in spirit and in truth. Jesus turned worship from a sensory experience into a spiritual experience. Today, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Today, the Holy of Holies is the heart of every true believer. And so he, he cries out his longing for God and he says in verse 5, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? And then he answers his own question, Hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him for the help of His countenance. He says, Oh my God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of the Jordan and from the heights of Hermon, from the hill Mizar. Now the psalmist is in the Golan, in the ancient region of the tribe of Dan. Jor, Jordan, the word Jordan, the first uh, half of the word, Jor, means to descend. And so Jordan means to descend from Dan. The river forms up in the north in the region of Dan, and it descends down toward the Sea of Galilee. It's interesting, there are three tributaries that merge in the Golan Heights that form the Jordan River, the Hashbani, the Banyas, and the Dan all come together to form the Jordan. You know, the, Ga the Golan Heights is a remote region even today. In fact, on our tours to Israel, we always like to stop at Banyas. Boy, it's a fantastic place. In fact, the New Testament refers to the same area as Caesarea Philippi. You right, might remember Jesus' encounters with his disciples there. Apparently, this is where the psalmist wrote Psalm 42. And what's really amazing is just below the main site there at Banyas, you've got to go to Israel with us to see this, but just below the main site there at Banyas, there's a waterfall, a beautiful waterfall. It takes a little bit of a hike. Mark Lawson has a hard time doing it, but he made it. Mark made it. It takes a little bit of a hike down a flight of stairs, but man, that waterfall is a must-see. And I believe that waterfall that we've been at, we've experienced, inspired verse 7. Listen, deep calls unto deep at the noise of your waterfalls. That waterfall is the only waterfall in the area. It's got to be the one. It's where the psalmist was. He says, deep calls unto deep at the noise of your waterfalls. All your waves and billows have gone over me. Notice this, the psalmist compares the spray of that waterfall to the presence of God engulfing him. The roar of the crashing waters he compares to the voice of God. You know, it's pretty cool to be on location, to actually feel the spray and to actually hear the waters crashing. He says, The Lord will command His loving kindness in the daytime, and in the night His song shall be with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I will say to God my rock, Why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Perhaps the psalmist was on the run. 
Maybe he was up in the mountains hiding from his enemy. We're not sure. He says, as with the breaking of my bones, my enemies reproach me. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him. The help of my countenance and my God. He's in desperate circumstances. He's away from the things that he loves, from his home and from the temple. And yet, he reminds himself, hope in God. God has a plan. God has a purpose. Psalm 43 was probably a continuation of Psalm 42. Vindicate me, O God, and plead my cause against an ungodly nation. O deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man. For you are the God of my strength. Why do you cast me off? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Oh, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your tabernacle. Boy, he longs to come back to Jerusalem and to once again take his place in the temple, in the presence of God. He says, then I will go to the altar. Once he gets home, once he gets back, he knows what he's going to do. Then I'm going to go to the altar, to God my exceeding joy. And on the harp, I will praise you, O God, my God. Man, when this wanderer ends his exile and he finally gets home, he knows the first thing he's going to do. He's not going to feed the dog, not going to check the mail, not going to go check his emails or mow his lawn. No, he knows the first thing he's going to do when he gets home, he's going to get his guitar. And he's going to go down to the temple, and he's going to set up right there next to the altar. Man, he's just going to praise God for his faithfulness. He hungers for the presence of God. He says, why are you cast down, O O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? That's a, a, a carryover from the previous psalm. He says, hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Now, Psalm 44 is also a contemplation of the sons of Korah. You know, I always thought sons of Korah would be a cool name for a Christian rock and roll band. Sons of Korah. And this past week I discovered there's a group from Australia that have actually taken the name. You know, they must have heard one of my previous teaching tapes. <laughs> Chapter 44 begins, We have heard with our ears, O God, our fathers have told us, the deeds you did in their days, in days of old. Now remember the Psalms were written 2,500 years before Gutenberg invented his printing press. The Jewish scribes were careful and they were faithful to record these Psalms on sacred scrolls. But understand, among the rank and file, among the public, these things were passed down orally. You know, people would hear people sing these Psalms and they would hear people quote these Psalms. This is how they were learned, how they were passed down. And here the psalmist recounts that that he's heard of God's work in days of old. He's heard of these things with his own ears. Which brings up an interesting question. If all your kids knew of God is what they've heard from your own lips, how much would they know? Take away Sunday school, take away books, take away things, video, veggie tales. If all your kids knew of God is what they've heard from your own lips, what would they know? Do we talk of God, as the psalmist says here, with ears? I've heard with my ears the deeds of old. 
the works of God. You know, do we hear, do we speak the works, do we recount to our kids the great things that God has done in our day and in days of old? Verse 2, you drove out the nations with your hand, but them you planted, you afflicted the peoples and cast them out, for they did not gain possession of the land by their own sword, nor did their own arm save them, but it was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your countenance, because you favored them. You know, the conquest of Cana is what he's talking about. And it involved drawn swords. It certainly involved spilt blood. It also involved brave men. But he's saying Israel should never forget that the victory came from God. You know, here the psalmist gives credit where credit is due. Isn't it sad that over time we tend to downplay God's intervention in our battles? We sort of forget how desperate we were. We kind of forget how God did that supernatural thing right at the right time. You know, we, we have a case of selective amnesia. We remember what our big faith, we remember what we did. You know, oh yeah, I got that other job. Or yeah, this opened up or that opened up. Oh, I'm thankful for that. But, but man, don't we give, we ought to go back and remember that God was in the midst of it. God was the one who was doing the work. We were just, you know, we tend to forget as time passes. Here he's giving credit where credit is due. He says, you are my king, O God. Command victories for Jacob. And I love this next line. Through you we will push down our enemies. Through your name we trample those who rise up against us. And he said, when we needed it, God gave us that push. He gave us that push. Has God ever given you a push when you needed it? Just fired you up, just gave you that little nudge right when you needed it. Verse 6, I will not trust in my bow, nor shall my sword save me. But you have saved us from our enemies and have put to shame those who hated us. In God we boast all day long and praise your name forever. Pause and think about that. You want to boast, you can boast all day long. If it's in God that you boast, in God we boast all day long. But you have cast us off and put us to shame. And you do not go out with our armies. You, you make us turn back from the enemy. And those who hate us have taken spoil for themselves. You have given us up like sheep intended for food and have scattered us among the nations. You sell your people for next to nothing and are not enriched by selling them. You make us a reproach to our neighbors, a scorn and a derision to those all around us. You make us a byword among the nations, a shaking of the head among the peoples. My, this psalm has taken a turn. God says, yes, you delivered us in times past, but you've also brought judgment on us when we've needed it. You know, Psalm 44 is thought to have been written during the days of King Hezekiah. The Assyrian general Sennacherib had just conquered the northern ten tribes of Israel and had now laid siege to the city of Jerusalem. And Sennacherib had sent his propagandists to speak to Jerusalem in Hebrew, in their native tongue. And what did they do? They mocked Hezekiah, and they mocked his God, and they mocked his faith. Their strategy was to strike fear in the hearts of Israel and intimidate them into a surrender without a battle. The psalmist continues, My dishonor is continually before me, 
And the shame of my face has covered me because of the voice of him who reproaches and reviles. That, that was Sennacherib's messengers. Because of the enemy and the avenger. You see, what was confusing to the psalmist is that this challenge had come on the heels of a great revival. Remember Hezekiah and his friend Isaiah had instituted a series of reforms that renewed the nation's faith and returned them to God. And the psalmist here is expressing his frustration. He says, all this has come upon us, but we have not forgotten you, nor have we dealt falsely with your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. But you have severely broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or stretched out our hands to a foreign God, would not God search this out? For he knows the secrets of the heart. You see, the psalmist is confused. If the nation had been sinning, then he could have interpreted this invasion as God's judgment, a righteous judgment. But this enemy didn't show up until after the people had turned their hearts back to God. Why are they suffering now? Good question. You know, I hear this complaint a lot from Christians. Man, my life was going great until I got saved. And then all of a sudden, things got harder. Things got tougher, man. I started getting persecuted. I, I started encountering all kinds of new problems. What's with that? Guys, when you're on the devil's side, why would he waste time attacking you in the first place? You know, it's only when you renounce the devil, it's only when you join God's team that suddenly you become a threat to him. It's suddenly you become a target for his persecution. You become a target for the hassles and hardships he wants to throw at you. This is what was happening to the psalmist. Notice what the psalmist says in verse 22. He says, yet for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Isn't it interesting? You recognize this verse. Paul quotes it in Romans 8 verse 36. Paul quotes it in the context of recounting the things that he has suffered for the sake of Christ. I hope you know by now, the Christian life is not a bed of roses. God never promised us a smooth path, a trouble-free life. Being a Christian, in fact, includes persecution and hardship. God makes it that way. It's a part of Christian discipleship. There are things that we learn only by going through the furnace. He says, awake, why do you sleep, O Lord? Arise, do not cast us off forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our body clings to the ground. Arise for our help and redeem us for your mercy's sake. The psalmist saw the presence of trouble as a sign of God's absence, but he was thinking wrongly. Verses 25 and 26 tell us that God allows opposition in our lives for two reasons. It reminds us of our helplessness and it drives us to God for help. In the long run, battles are really blessings. Well, Psalm 45 is a love song and it's set to the tune, The Lilies. Never heard the tune, but I'm sure it was a good one. It may have been a wedding song composed for a royal wedding. It actually speaks of the king and his bride. Now, the identity of the kingly couple in Psalm 45 is unknown. It could have been David and Michael, 
Perhaps it was Solomon and the Shulamite. Here's the wedding music for their wedding. You read about their honeymoon over in the Song of Solomon. It could have been Hezekiah and Hephzibah, who was the daughter of Isaiah. We know for sure that it speaks of Christ and His bride, the church. Well, Verse 1 tells us, My heart is overflowing with a good theme. I recite my composition concerning the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword upon your thigh, O mighty one, with your glory and your majesty. And in your majesty, ride prosperously because of truth, humility, and righteousness. And your right hand shall teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. This king is a victor. He's also a sovereign. He says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Notice this king is a happy man. God has anointed him with the oil of gladness. I think of my king, Jesus. You know, one of the things that anger me the most is whenever I see Jesus portrayed as sad and as solemn. I believe that Jesus was anointed with the oil of gladness. That he had a grin on his face most of the time. Jesus was the glad man, I have no doubt. He smiled and he laughed a lot. Don't you love that picture of Jesus? That's how I picture Jesus in my mind. He was anointed with gladness. And you know, I believe that when I open my eyes for the first time in heaven, I'm going to see a smile in Jesus with a big grin on his face. Happy to see me. Well, he continues to describe the king. He says, all your garments are scented with myrrh and aloes and cassia out of the ivory palaces by which they have made you glad. King's daughters are among your honorable women. At your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. Boy, gold. Ophir was a, a region renowned for its gold. All the, the purest gold came from Ophir. And here the queen comes into view. He's been talking about the king. Now he starts talking about the queen. And guess what? The queen is wearing some bling. She's decked out in this gold from Ophir. Now here's what's happening. The queen is about to enter the honeymoon chamber. But first, she's told how she needs to prepare for the special night. You know, today when a girl prepares for her wedding night, she, she starts out by soaking in a tub, and then she hits the salon for a manicure and a pedicure and an updo, whatever that is. I paid for one. I don't know what it is. But. And then she's moisturized, and then she's accessorized, and then she spends as much of dad's money as she can. But for this bride, the preparation is all mental. She, she prepares her heart relationally. You know, I think that's often overlooked when it comes to the intimacy side of marriage. 
You know, the most important sex organ for both men and women is their brain. You know, it's having the right attitude. It's having a, a love for one another, a caring and a giving for one another. Sexual intimacy in marriage is more about attitude than it is anatomy. And notice what she's told to prepare her for the wedding night. She's told, listen, O daughter. Consider and incline your ear. Forget your own people also and your father's house. Now here's what makes a great lover for all you married couples. Four words. Listen, consider, incline, and forget. First, the queen, she listens rather than talks. Second, she considers the king. She thinks of his needs, not her own. She's focused on him, not herself. Third, she inclines or she leans out and she sort of stretches her soul out toward him. And then fourth, she forgets home. She, she puts her past behind her. She stays in the moment, in the present. The queen has the ability to put her past behind it and live in the moment. Now, verse 11 assures the queen of her husband's love. So the king will greatly desire your beauty because he is your Lord Worship Him. And notice the connection here between sexuality and spirituality. Notice sexual intimacy in marriage is analogous to spiritual intimacy in worship. He's talking about the queen going in to the chambers with the king, and and then the final words are, worship Him. I do believe that what makes a good lover also makes a good worshiper. Intimacy with your spouse is a lot like intimacy with God. Remember those four words. Listen, consider, incline, and forget. Here's a great formula for worship. When we worship God, we need to listen, not talk. We need to be attentive. We need to keep from getting distracted or sidetracked. How often do we let little annoyances break our concentration? John Donne once said, I neglect God and His angels for the noise of a fly, for the rattling of a coach, for the whining of a door. I neglect God and His angels for a squeaky door. We should consider as well as listen. We need to focus on God's character, not just our needs. If we want to worship, we need to incline or stretch out our soul toward God. You know you can reach out spiritually to God. You can do that, and you should. And then finally, we need to forget the past. To be a good worshiper, it involves staying in the moment. It involves living in the present. As Paul said to the Philippians, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the mark. Well, notice verse 12. And the daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will seek your favor. Here he's talking about the wedding shower. Daughter of Tyre comes with a gift. And the royal daughter is all glorious within the palace. Her clothing is woven with gold. She shall be brought to the king in robes of many colors. The virgins, her companions who follow her, shall be brought to you with gladness and rejoicing. They shall be brought. They shall enter the king's palace. Now remember, just before he ascended to heaven, Jesus told his disciples that he was going to prepare a place for them. He was following Jewish wedding custom. After the betrothal, the husband would go home and he would prepare an abode for his bride. 
when it was complete, then he would return for the home taking. That's when he would get her and, and he would usher her out and bring her back to the place he had prepared for her. For us, that home taking goes by another name. It's called the rapture. As the bride of Christ, we should be looking for it. We should be looking for the Lord coming back to take us to be where He's prepared for us to be. Today, Jesus is in heaven. Technically, we're betrothed to Him. But when that heavenly home is complete, He's promised to return and take us to be where He is and to live with Him forever. Perhaps this is the day Psalm 45 envisions with gladness and rejoicing they shall be brought, they shall enter the king's palace. I'm looking forward to that day. Verse 16, Instead of your fathers shall be your sons, whom you shall make princes in all the earth. I will make your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore the people shall praise you forever and ever. The preface to Psalm 46 calls it a song of Alamoth. The word Alamoth probably means high-pitched. Perhaps this was a song for the sopranos, not the gangsters, but the sisters in the choir, you know, the high-pitched voices in the choir. Now, most commentators agree that Psalms 46 through 48 were written at the time of this Assyrian assault on Jerusalem that we mentioned earlier. You see, Assyria was a rising empire. Oh, in the middle 7th century B.C. Assyria was a rising empire bent on world conquest. They had overthrown Syria and Israel, and now they were headed toward Egypt. Only Jerusalem... And the Jewish king, Hezekiah, stood in their way. And when Hezekiah looked over the walls, he saw the meanest troops on the planet camped against him in his city. But he prayed. And he had faith. And he trusted God. And he got his buddy Isaiah to pray as well. And a battle angel was sent by God in the middle of the night. And that one battle angel slaughtered 185,000 Assyrian troops in that one night. The next morning, when Hezekiah got up and he looked over the walls, all he saw was carnage and bloodshed and devastation. He couldn't believe it, that God had won this victory, that the troops had been slaughtered by an angel in the middle of the night. They had won the victory without even a fight. And that's when he picked up a pen and either he or one of the sons of Korah wrote of God's deliverance. He says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. The Hebrew word translated trouble means a tight spot. Ever been in a tight spot? I'll bet there are a few here tonight that are in a tight spot. I love Psalm 46. It's how to get out of a tight spot. That's another title for it. I love Psalm 46. Here's an outline for you. You can go back and really dwell on this psalm. It's a great psalm. One of my favorites. In verses 1 through 3, God is a refuge. God is a refuge. In verses 4 through 7, God is a river. And then in verses 8 through 11, God is the ruler. God is a refuge. He's a river. And He's the ruler. Now the psalm begins... God is our refuge. 
In other words, he's a place of protection from the storm. And life is full of storms, isn't it? Boy, life can flood, flood us. A swirl of activity takes place. Situations overwhelm. Suddenly we're, we're looking uphill. We, we were just bowled over. We didn't know what happened to us. Wow, how things can change so quickly. I've heard it put, life is like fighting a gorilla. You don't rest when you get tired. You rest when the gorilla gets tired. And yet God is a refuge. He is a very present help in times of trouble. That expression means He's easily accessible in times of trouble. Aren't you glad? Not a lot of red tape you have to go through to get to God. Not a lot of forms you got to fill out. Aren't you glad that when you pray, somebody on the other end of the line doesn't say, well, if you'd like Jesus, punch one. If you'd like the Holy Spirit, punch two. If you'd like God, punch Aren't you glad it doesn't work like that? That you can just come boldly to the throne of grace, cut through the red tape, just come immediately into God's presence. He is a very present help in trouble. He's our refuge. He's our rock. You know, my daughter was a cheerleader in high school. The best there ever was, by the way. And now she coaches cheerleaders. And she had a favorite cheer. We did it around the house all the time. I still know the words. Rain can't rock this house. Thunder can't rock this house. Lightning can't rock this house. And you can't rock this house. My daughter was a cheerleader. I wasn't a cheerleader. I was the quarterback. But my daughter was the cheerleader. But, But this is what the psalmist is saying about God in Psalm 46. He's saying, bring on the storm, man. Bring on the rain. Bring on the thunder. It doesn't matter to me. You can't rock this house because my rock is Jesus Christ. My life is built on a solid rock. God is what we need when we need Him. You remember that when you get in a tight spot, okay? He says, therefore, we will not fear, even though the earth be removed. And a literal translation would read, though the land changes hands. Recall the context here. Invaders are sitting just outside the city gates. And the psalmist is envisioning a worst case scenario. He's saying even if the city gets sacked, even if we're invaded and taken over by foreigners, God will still be faithful to His people. His plans for us will not fail. How's that for some real faith? He says, though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling... Though all this happens, I'm going to trust in God. Add to his list, though the economy tanks, though I lose my job, though I can't sell my home, though my teenager rebels, God is still my refuge. Who will I fear? You know, real faith, notice he says here, though the mountains be carried away, though the waters roar, though the mountains shake. Notice this, real faith is though faith. Not if faith. It's not, I'll trust God if He makes my life easy. If He makes my life safe. It's not that at all. It's though faith, not if faith. It's I'll trust God though hard times come. Though difficulties arise. God is a refuge. And God is also a river. Verse 4. There is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. Now, in preparation of a siege against the capital city, 
King Hezekiah had moved to secure Jerusalem's water supply. The Gihon Spring bubbles up just southeast of the city. Do you see the little, uh, the little walls that jut out right there on the side? On the, on the right, lower right-hand side? That's the Gihon Spring. Later, they built walls around it, but at the time, uh, the water was outside the city, so they had to go outside the walls to get water to take it back into the city. Well, what Hezekiah did in preparation for this invasion, he went and he built a tunnel 1,777 feet long through this solid rock. This tunnel was an amazing feat of ancient engineering. It brought the water up into the city so the water supply would be in the gates of the city, within the city walls. Therefore, they'd have access to the water in the event of an invasion. But it not only was it a, an engineering feat, this spring was also a picture of Judah's relationship with God. For like this spring brought water into the city, likewise God is a river who brings water into our lives. As the, as the Gihon supplied Israel with water, God supplies us with supernatural strength and supernatural refreshment. Notice verse 5. He says, God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. I love that verse. God is in the midst. Hey, God is always in the midst of whatever I'm in the middle of. You're in the middle of some trouble tonight. Understand, God's right there with you. He's in the midst of your mess. He's in the midst of whatever you're in the middle of. God is not afraid to dive into our mess. I love John Phillips. He writes this. We see Jesus in the midst of the upper room after his resurrection, in the midst of the lampstands walking among the churches in Revelation. He is always in the midst. He says, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Isn't this the Christian mes Christmas message? The world was stained by sin. But rather than God do away with the world, rather than God take us out of the world, instead He joins us in the midst of our muck and our mire. That's what Christmas is all about. He says, God shall help her just at the break of dawn. And in ancient times, armies always attacked at the break of dawn. In other words, at first light. But God was ready. He said, the nations rage, the kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice, the earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Think about that. Sennacherib, the Assyrian king, had not counted on God being in the midst of the city. <laughs> he saw this puny little city, he thought, I could take that. He didn't consider God being in the midst of her. But here we're told, the Lord of hosts is with us. Recognize that? The Lord is with us? In Hebrew, that expression, God with us, is the Christmas title for Jesus. Emmanuel, God with us. In fact, it was Hezekiah's contemporary, the prophet Isaiah, who, who prophesied, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. Now, if you go back in Isaiah 
And if you flip over a chapter from that prophecy, and if you read Isaiah 8, verse 8, the prophet predicts something else about Emmanuel. Not only will he be born of a virgin, but Emmanuel will spread out his wings or his, his, his muscles, so to speak, and he will defeat the invaders. Go back and read it in, in Isaiah chapter 8. In fact, that's exactly what he did. Three times in the Old Testament we're told that the angel of the Lord, that battle angel that I mentioned earlier, we're told that the angel of the Lord came at night and slaughtered 185,000 Assyrian troops. Hey, I believe that that angel or messenger of the Lord was none other than a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. Emmanuel, Isaiah called him. Who's that? That's Jesus Here's what folks don't know about Christmas. The infant in the manger was really Hezekiah's deliverer. That's pretty mind-blowing. That little bitty baby was that battle angel who killed 185,000 Assyrians in one night. In other words, Mary's baby had been to battle. Now that blows your mind. That when Mary picked up that little infant, she was holding in her arms the warrior of God. Jesus had been here before, and he had won a great victory. He was going to win another victory, but this time through a different means. Verse 8, come behold the works of the Lord, who has made desolations in the earth. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot in the fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. He is a refuge. He is a river. And He is a ruler. Our God rules over the nations. He rules over the troubles that we face. He says, be still and know that I am God. You know, fear grows in the noise of this world. Fear grows in the noise. If you listen to the noises... You'll become destined for confusion and fear. Skeptical friends and sensationalistic media and doubting voices. Fear grows in those doubts. Only when we come to the quiet, only when we let God speak, that's, only when faith, that's the only time faith grows. Fear grows in the noise. Faith grows in the quiet. It's been said the more we train ourselves to spend time with God and alone, the more we discover that God is with us at all times and in all places. He concludes the psalm, The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Now Psalm 47 is probably a sequel to Psalm 46. It's interesting though that Psalm 47 was sung seven times in the Jewish synagogue prior to the blowing of the shofar on the Feast of Rosh Hashanah. The Feast of Rosh Hashanah, or the Feast of Trumpets, was the Jewish New Year. But for us, it foreshadows the rapture. My point is, is that in, in Jewish synagogue worship, this psalm was associated with the blowing of the trumpet. It could be associated with the rapture for us. Think about it in that context. He says, Oh, clap your hands, all ye peoples. Shout to God with a voice of triumph. For the Lord Most High is awesome. He is a great king over all the earth. You know, when the Assyrian diplomat introduced Sennacherib to King Hezekiah, he called him the great king. It was an intimidating title. 
But notice here the psalmist, he fires back. He calls the Hebrew God the great king over all the earth. Our king's greater than your king. He will subdue the peoples under us and the nations under our feet. The New Testament says that one day when Jesus returns, He's going to put all things under His feet. He will choose our inheritance for us, the excellence of Jacob, whom He loves. And isn't that great? The word excellence literally means pride. In other words, these rebellious Jews, they were still God's pride and joy. He still loved them. It's amazing how gracious God truly is. He says, God has gone up with a shout. The Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with understanding. God reigns over the nations. God sits on His holy throne. The princes of the people have gathered together. The people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is greatly exalted. Now Psalm 48 is a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God in His holy mountain. Now God lays claim to two cities. His earthly capital is the city of Jerusalem. And His heavenly capital is heaven or what we call the New Jerusalem. And the subject of Psalm 48 is actually concerns both the earthly and the heavenly Jerusalem. And he talks about the earthly Jerusalem. He says, beautiful in elevation. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, you, you know it's a fascinating place. Beautiful in elevation. Jerusalem is 2,500 feet above sea level. But what makes it even higher is the Dead Sea, just below it, just south of it, sits 1,290 feet below sea level. This means that the city of Jerusalem towers 4,000 feet above the Jordan Valley. Jerusalem was built on five mountains. Mount Zion to the south, Mount Moriah right at its heart, Scopus to the north, Olivet to the east, and Ophel to the west. On the east of Jerusalem's walls, they rise even higher because they're rising up above the Kidron Valley. And it makes for the most magnificent skyline of any city on the earth. When you're standing on the Mount of Olives looking out over the city, it, it's amazing. He says, beautiful in elevation is this Jerusalem. He calls it the joy of the whole earth. And it was the lifelong ambition of every Jew to make a pilgrimage and see the holy city. It's the joy of the whole earth, he says. Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth, is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. North of Zion was perhaps the most important of the mountains, Mount Moriah. This was the threshing floor that Solomon, where Solomon built the temple. Further north on that same mountain, just above where the temple was built, there was another hill. And this was the place where Abraham offered his son Isaac. And this was the place where later Jesus was crucified. It goes by another name, Calvary or Golgotha. The holiest sites were on the sides of the north. You know, it's interesting that's true in all the ancient religions. The home of the gods was always located in the north. This probably stems back from the, the true throne of God in heaven. 
It's interesting, Isaiah 14, verse 13 says that when Lucifer tried to rebel against God, he exalted himself to the sides of the north. Again, God's throne is always on the sides of the north. Job 37, verse 22, another psalm, 75, verse 6, refer to God as residing in the north. The Bible indicates that heaven may somehow be in the north. God is in His palaces, we're told. He is known as a refuge. Jerusalem was invincible, not because of its elevation or because of its walls, but because God resided there. It was His city. He says, For behold, the kings assembled. They passed by together. They saw it, and so they marveled. They were troubled. They hastened away. Fear took hold of them there in pain, as of a woman in birth pangs, as when you break the ships of Tarshish with an east wind. As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, God will establish it forever. We have thought, O God, on your loving kindness in the midst of your temple. According to your name, O God, so is your praise to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is full of righteousness. Let Mount Zion rejoice. Let the daughters of Judah be glad because of your judgments. Walk about Zion and go all around her. Last December on our trip to Jerusalem, we literally obeyed verse 12. We went on a walkabout. We went on a walkabout Jerusalem. Actually, what we did is we went and we walked on top of the walls. We went up at the, see there's our group. There's Anna. And there's Dave Tobin. See the Georgia Bulldog cap right at the top of the stairs there. Dave with his hand. And that's Ricky right behind him. And uh, that's me at the very end. We walked all around the top of the walls of, of Jerusalem. Did you know we were actually obeying God's word when we did that? Because here we're told, walk about Zion. Go all around her. You know, see the, the beauty, the city of God. It's, it's precious to his heart. He says, count her towers. Mark well her bulwarks. Consider her palaces that you may tell it to the generation following. For this is God, our God forever and ever. He will be our God even to death. God in heaven loves people in every city on earth, but He has a special love for the city of Jerusalem. Well, Psalm 49 is similar to Psalm 37, if you remember it. It seeks to answer the question, how should the righteous react when we see the wicked prosper? An age-old question. Verse 1 tells us, Hear this, all peoples, give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and rich, low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom, and the meditation of my heart shall give understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will disclose my dark sayings on the harp. Why should I fear in the days of evil when the iniquity at my heels surrounds me? You ever heard that expression there, nipping at my heels? That's where we get it, right there. Those who trust in their wealth and boast in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother nor give to God a ransom for him. In other words, money buys a lot of stuff. But no amount of money in the world can purchase God's forgiveness. Hope you realize there's no government bailout for sin. Forgiveness is never for sale. Verse 8. For the redemption of their souls is costly, and it shall cease forever that he should continue to live eternally 
and not see the pit. You know, in the Middle Ages, a corrupt Catholic church sold indulgences. In other words, for a price, you could get a get-out-of-hell-free card. Basically what an indulgence was. I once had a drunk guy. He offered me money. And I knew what he was doing. He was trying to, you know, massage his guilt. You know, he thought by giving me money or giving the church money, you know, he could buy his forgiveness. I refused to take it. If he'd been sober and wanted to give me money, I probably would have taken it. No, I'm just kidding. God doesn't want our money. God wants us. That's what he wants. You can't buy forgiveness. You can't buy God's favor. As we talked about this morning, it's a free gift. You have to humble your heart and accept it, receive it. He says, for he sees wise men die. Likewise, the fool and the senseless person perish and leave their wealth to others. Oh boy, money won't buy a second of life either, will it? He says, their inner thought is that their houses will last forever. Their dwelling places to all generations. They call their lands after their own names. Nevertheless, man, though in honor, does not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. A man names a ranch or an estate after himself. It bears his name for generations. But he goes the way of all men. I would suggest it's better to have your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life than on some ranch or some deed somewhere. This is the way of those who are foolish and of their posterity who approve their sayings. Like sheep, they are laid in the grave. Death shall feed on them. In other words, a rich man's body rots and deteriorates just like an animal's corpse. No, no distinction there. The upright shall have dominion over them in the morning, and their beauty shall be consumed in the grave far from their dwelling. But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave. See, he teaches a resurrection. He believes in the resurrection. For he shall receive me. Do not be afraid when one becomes rich, when the glory of his house is increased. For when he dies, he shall carry nothing away. His glory shall not descend after him. You know, you, you don't go into the afterlife carrying a couple of suitcases. You don't take it with you. You've heard the old saying, you've, uh, you've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul. You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. You can give it away, and God will receive it. You can invest spiritually, and it will reap an eternal reward. Verse 18, though while he lives, he blesses himself. For men will praise you when you do well for yourself. In other words, you'll be praised on earth, yet he shall go to the generation of his fathers. They shall never see light. A man who is in honor, yet does not understand, is like the beasts that perish. And there we have Psalm 49. Next week, what do you say we pick it up right here in Psalm 50?